This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosulski and Fagy Stern. Good morning, good morning. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show, and we welcome you um, to 101.9 High FM. Good morning, Adol. <laughs> good morning, Fagy. You're looking at me very weird today. <laughs> Sorry, but I had to pull some needles out of someone's face today. <laughs> well, at least I can smile and I can laugh. Okay, well, welcome to the show. And today we've got a very important uh, topic to discuss. I think every every topic is important. But this is a very common topic. It's a topic that um, amongst the female population is discussed a lot. It is something that I it seems... Um, to be found a lot now in young people, and that is the topic of PCOS, which we are going to, I'm just giving you the abbreviation, we're going to talk about it, and our guest today on the show is Dr. Samaya Ibrahim. She's a gynecologist in private practice in Houghton, Johannesburg, and after qualifying from Woods in 1993, she had her early years of practice at the Charle Masheke Hospital, um, she established and championed a safe midwife's practice at Linkwood Clinic. She likes to write and edit in various publications, public speaking, health education. She's also a board member of the Blossom Care Solutions, a social development business aimed at empowering women through business development in the field of manufacturing biodegradable sanitary pads. Wow. But what is most important for our show today is that she has a couple of current interests in the gynecological endoscopic um, field, and that is in urogynecology, menopause, and gyne endocrinology, which includes the topic we're going to be speaking about today, and that's PCOS. And uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting one and important one for us to know, as I said, because it's very prevalent. Thank you, Doctor, for making the time, and good morning to you. Good morning. It's lovely to be on your show again. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for giving us of your time. Okay, so for all listeners who don't know peacocks, you know, and thinking it's some peacock strutting around, <laughs> how about giving us a, a definition of what peacocks is, and then from there we can segue in understanding more why 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 it's something that we have to talk about today and what can be done about it. So peacocks is basically short for polycystic ovarian. Right, PCOS. So PCOS is a condition that we've known about uh, for good over 50 years, maybe even longer. And it's a metabolic condition that is shows up in gynecology as um, as various things. So it shows up as cysts on the ovary. So these are not cysts that need to be cut out, but they are So what happens is we think, we're not 100% sure, but we think that there's a derangement, that the pituitary gland talks to the ovary in a way that's not 100% conducive to ovulation. And so instead of producing one egg that grows and develops every month, the ovary will produce, or both ovaries will produce multiple follicles, very few of which will get to ovulation point. So when we look at the ovaries, what we're seeing is a whole bunch of smaller follicles that are stuck at a certain point of development, and they're all under one centimeter. So, And then there isn't an ovulation with every cycle. So how that shows up in someone's life is it shows up as very few periods or an absent period. That's one of the ways. 
other features of the condition is because on the ovary, part of the profile of this condition is that we have higher levels of male hormone or testosterone, so which is called hyperandrogenism. And how that shows up in women in symptoms is acne, excessive hair growth on the body, and sometimes hair loss on the head. And then the third thing that happens is often we find that women have difficulty losing weight because there's also an associated insulin metabolic issue around that and the way we metabolize glucose. And then, of course, with all these issues, it can actually show up downstream as a problem with getting pregnant as a fertility issue. So where's the cart and where's the horse? Like, where's it starting? Is it a problem that you have to look at the pituitary and then fix it downstream? Or is it something downstream that fixes the upstream? Like, these are all symptoms. Or do all the symptoms come together? Or it can be either or or some of them? So, you know, traditionally, PCOS, if you go and research and you read and Google, traditionally, they used to teach us at medical school that people with PCOS were bigger, so they had difficulty losing weight, they were infertile, they were female, and they were 40-ish kind of thing. Now the profile's different. So you can get a woman who's skinny who has PCOS, and you can get – so the bouquet – that you get from the condition is different and individualized to everybody. So some people will have the absent period and nothing else. And some people will have the PCOS looking ovaries on the ultrasound and they will have the infertility or the extra hair growth or the acne. So it comes in various what we call phenotypes. The phenotypes is how something expresses. So we don't know what causes it. We don't know where it starts. We just know that these are the links that are associated or these are what's part of PCOS. We suspect that it's linked to inflammation. We know that there's a genetic predisposition, so it tends to run in families. But families also eat the same thing, right? So families also sometimes lead the same kind of lifestyle. So is it lifestyle-related? Is it linked to genetics? It's probably a little bit of everything, So it can also be linked to issues around insulin, high insulin levels, insulin sensitivity, the way we metabolize glucose, our diet. So high-carbohydrate diets can be also linked to the development of PCOS. We also know that high-stress environments can lead to the development of chronic inflammation, which can show up as downstream as PCOS. You mentioned carbohydrates. Would would you suggest then that someone that has PCOS should completely stop carbohydrates? So when we talk about carbohydrates, let's classify it. We're talking about refined carbohydrates, okay? So what's a refined carbohydrate? We're talking about sugar, as you find it in table sugar. We're talking about bread. We're talking about pasta. So anything that doesn't look like the original food group it came from, Right? When you look at complex carbohydrate, that has a different effect on the body. So complex carbohydrates can come from foods that are carbohydrate, but that occur naturally in nature. So, for example, if you eat a potato with the skin on and steamed or baked versus if you ate a potato that's peeled and fried in an inflammatory fat like sunflower oil, that's going to have a different imprint on the body. 
right? Versus if you eat a, two teaspoons of sugar in your tea, for example, and you have that three times a day. So I think we have to, we can't say zero carbs. We mean low glycemic index. So you can have carbs, but you can have complex carbs and you can have clean carbs and you can have good carbs. The idea is to stay away from not only carbs, but foods that trigger inflammation. Okay, that's a good. We're speaking to Dr. Ibrahim, and we are talking about the condition of PCOS, um, what how it's caused, and what we can do about it. Um, this is the Healthy You Wealthy You show. This is one hundred one point nine High FM, and we will be back with you very shortly. This is the Healthy You Wealthy You show with Adol Kasilski and Fagy Stern. Welcome back. This is the Healthy You Wealthy Show, and we are talking PCOS with Dr. Ibrahim. So, Dr. Ibrahim, is there a definitive way to diagnose PCOS? Yes, you can get um, multiple ways in which the diagnosis is made. So, let's say somebody goes to the gynecologist or the GP and says, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. How does the GP or gynecologist know that it's PCOS or suspect that it's PCOS? by what the patient says. So if the patient's complaining about excessive hair growth compared to everyone in a family, difficulty with maintenance of weight or difficulty to keep weight off, if she's got bad skin and if she's got no period or very few periods, maybe three periods in a year, right? And so that already puts out an alert and there's a family history of type 2 diabetes, and mom had PCOS and granny had diabetes and granddad had diabetes. So already we start suspecting that PCOS is the cause here. Then we usually do an ultrasound of the ovaries. If somebody hasn't been sexually active, we do an abdominal ultrasound. So we go through the top. If somebody has already been sexually active, we do a vaginal ultrasound. And we look and see what the ovaries look like. Now, with polycystic ovarian syndrome, most often, and I say most often, but not always, the ovaries are larger than expected. They have lots and lots of follicles, which are the polycysts. So they look like they're very full. And you see that there can be a peripheral arrangement of the follicles in sort of like what we call a string of pearl effect. So it almost looks like a string of pearls is situated around the edge of the ovary. And then we look at, look at see the ovarian stroma. There's like a lot of tissue in between that that's usually what produces the testosterone. And then we also then say, right, it looks like you have it, if you have it. But this is interesting. Not all patients who have the syndrome will have PCOS looking ovaries, but most will, like 90% will. Okay. Then we look at blood work. And the blood work really is to confirm, also after examining the patient and checking the hair growth and checking the acne and all of that, and we then do bloods. And on the blood test, we usually find a high testosterone level. We look at something called the free androgen index. We can find um, evidence of this pituitary dysregulation. So we find sometimes that certain levels of hormones are not in the correct proportion. So we look at FSH-LH ratios. We can find high insulin, and we look at high insulin in relation to glucose, and we find a high HOMA index. We call that um, indicative. And there's now some evidence to suggest that 
Another hormone, which they use to check ovarian reserve, anti-mullerian hormone, can also be extremely elevated in women who have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So these are all new things. Other things that can happen with PCOS, sometimes people can have underactive thyroids associated with it. Thyroid. Mm-hmm. And also there's a vitamin D deficiency associated with it. Sometimes there's an anxiety and a depression component. So often sometimes patients are treated for that. And that's the kind of profile and stuff that we look for as clinicians when we're making a diagnosis. Now, if, if, if you get a whole host of these things and it's indicating that the person has PCOS, then what? What are you doing to the patient? I've, I've heard people going and having operations, like to remove all the cysts off their ovaries because, you know, that they, they, they were in such a, a situation. Is, is that right, wrong? Like, what would, what would we say it, to It patients? also seems that there's so many different types of cases. Like, there must be all different types of medications or different routes to take. Remembering, in the old days, or traditionally in the old days, I mean, traditionally, one of the surgical management of polycystic ovarian syndrome was to do a process called ovarian wedge resection. Now, this was in the days before laparoscopy. So this is historical. Nobody does it anymore. Okay. So there's open cut like a Caesar and cut a little wedge out of each ovary, right? Nobody does that anymore. Then what came up after that is often the question was, does the patient want to be pregnant right now or doesn't she want to be pregnant? Because that makes, because the idea is if she wants to be pregnant and she's not ovulating 12 times a year, it's going to be harder because she has fewer opportunities to get pregnant. So how do we advance and advise or create an ovulation? We used to do a process called ovarian drilling. So in laparoscopy, which is putting a light and a camera through the belly button and the general anesthetic, we used to take a little cautery device and we used to make multiple puncture sites in the, each ovary, eight to ten puncture sites, basically puncturing the ovary, and that would tend to kickstart the ovulation process. And patients could spontaneously ovulate. We don't really do that anymore. If you speak to Dr. Goldberg's advice lab, he doesn't like us to do that anymore. He says it damages the ovaries, so we tend to avoid that. And so now the management is essentially, again, if people want to fall pregnant, we um, work on all the lifestyle factors. They clean up their diet. We teach them on how to exercise appropriately, how to hopefully kickstart the weight loss, manage all the issues around it. So if there's underactive thyroid, manage that. If there's insulin resistance, manage that through diet or sometimes medication. And then if they want to fall pregnant, we induce ovulation, right? So we induce ovulation with various medications, starting from oral medications. If those don't work, we then progress onto the injectable, like like the fertility units we would use. If the aim of the patient is not to fall pregnant right now, we say, right, how would you like us to approach this? Our approach would be definitely always the lifestyle factors, and we manage the insulin issues, the high testosterone issues. So if a girl's problem is mainly her skin, we try to work with that, and then we offer different solutions. So sometimes we put patients on the oral contraceptive pill, because what that does is it almost like rebooting a computer. We hit everything on off, right? 
we switch the entire reproductive cycle off intentionally and we control it with an artificial amount of estrogen and progesterone so that the symptoms disappear. And when she wants to fall pregnant, we say, right, come off the pill and go into ovulation induction. So we start off from almost a clean slate on zero. And then hopefully they get pregnant before they go back into the PCOS mode. So there are multiple ways. Just come and say, can I manage this by myself with medication, supplements, all of that? And then, of course, we do that as well. So, like, if if there's cysts being formed, do those do those cysts disappear, dissolve? Like, if I if somebody has PCOS and she's got a whole lot of cysts on her ovaries and she goes through a diet change, a, a regime change, and you know you're dealing with all of those things and you're getting the you're getting the thyroid right, will those cysts I don't know what disappear, melt away, go away? Like, you know, can can and then the flip side of the question. Can you have that for the rest of your life, that you're going to land up having cysts on your ovaries? So let's be clear about this. These cysts are not cysts that have to be removed. They're not dangerous in any way. They're just a downstream consequence of what's happening with the endocrine or the hormonal system. Mm. So they're not, if you leave them and they don't go away, it's not like it's not a health risk. They're just there because they're there for a reason, right? So some people, even though they sort out their PCOS, however, they will always have ovaries that look like that forever. And some people, you change the hormonal profile, their ovaries kind of look completely normal. So you don't know until you know. So interesting because I was actually diagnosed with PCOS before I fell pregnant with any of my kids. And um, I was told to go on metformin at the time. And mm-hmm. I had called my doctor in South Africa. I was I was living overseas. And I said I had, I had done a diet previously. I'd done Dr. Cohen's diet um, and I'd lost a lot of weight and um, I tried to do the diet again, but I had to say what medications I was on and I wrote metformin and apparently I wasn't allowed to actually do the diet if I was on metformin, it was either the one or the other. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my doctor told me to do the diet rather, did the diet, lost 20 kilos very successfully and fell pregnant immediately. Right. So now that's fascinating. So some people will, if I look at my own ovaries, it looks like I have PCOS, but I've never had a problem. So you could also have people who have PCOS looking ovaries, but don't have the syndrome. But if you gain, if I had to gain 20 kilos, I would go into the full blown syndrome because I, so that's why, and we don't know what threshold that is for everyone. Like your threshold was a 20 kilogram weight gain. You dropped the 20 kilos, your whole metabolic system kicked in into normality. Yes. And hence, now we must remember that the reproductive system, if it's working correctly, is a downstream consequence of a body that's functioning at its optimum. Yes. If a body is functioning at its optimum for whatever reason, there's no energy and capacity for reproduction. So there will be a problem that shows up downstream, but that's not the real problem. That's just the end result of an underlying bigger problem. Right. So if you, you could find, hey, presto, bonus, reproduction gets fixed. That begs a bigger question now because – you know, today one in every six person is suffering from infertility, you know, and you can kind of have to ask yourself the question like, why, what are we doing different? And what I'm hearing from you 
if I'm correct in what I'm saying, and you can correct me if I'm not, that it's our lifestyle, it's what we're eating and what we're doing that is actually playing a very, very big part in, in, in downstream in, in, into our reproductive health. So yes and no. Okay, so it's more complicated than just lifestyle, right? So example, what I mean by that. So yes, if you look at the age at which people are having babies for the first time now, right? Women are built to have babies in our 20s. That's when our fertility is optimal, right? But yet, there are many of us who have stuff to do in our 20s. We're not ready. So we delay childbearing. So what happens is our eggs age, right? So your egg quality ages as you get older. That's a reality. You can still have babies in your 30s and your late 30s, but the probability drops, right? And certainly, we, some of us want to start in our 40s. And at that point, it's not the optimum time. It's possible, but it's not optimum as nature intended. So, of course, that is a lifestyle factor. We are busy with careers, etc. Then, coupled to that, we could have some genetic issues around diabetes, etc., endometriosis. We could live our lives a certain way with what we eat, the toxins that are in our soil, the top, the insecticides, the quality of our food. So we're eating <laughs> these high-calorie foods that end up being nutritionally depleted. So it's known that an orange today doesn't have the same vitamin value as an orange 50 years ago. And this is... Unfortunately, the way it is. So, and then of course, the amount of stress we are under from lifestyle, the full catastrophe of our lives, whatever that looks like, careers, load shedding. You know, in some parts of the world, your life situation is completely different if you're living in Israel, for example, as if you're living in South Africa. So there's other issues that come up, some stressful events, right? So, all of this does play an impact and a role in fertility. All of it. So then just to go back, there's a, there's a lot of like teenagers, I think that mothers of teenage girls tend to fret a lot. I think it's, it's part of, of going through the puberty adolescence where your skin gets bad and you know, you're doing that. That's not indicative of PCOS. That's indicative of, of the hormonal changes. But many times, like it seems that like it's, it's like one long continuum. They start with the bad skin and then straight away you're, you're, you're Mrs. Picos, you know, that that's what you've got as well. And you land up going in a swirl of taking so much, so many different medications. Like is, is, is there a link? Like should, is it, is it right the trajectory or is it that we, we just. And do those medications have future effects on fertility? Yeah. Do, do those medications that the teenagers are taking have a future effect on their fertility? So, you know, it's quite interesting that. Often when people have bad skin, when young people have bad skin, there is a, a, a lot of use of Roaccutane, right? Because it does, the reality is it, it works in a lot of people to their skin. And there have been some associations with Roaccutane usage and polycystic ovarian syndrome. But we don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg, because by nature of its fact, PCOS is associated with a higher testosterone level and bad skin. People who require Roaccutane are more likely to have PCOS and the other way around. So we don't know if Roaccutane causes PCOS. There was those questions also asked, but we still don't know the answer to that fully and whether there would have been PCOS anyway and that required the use of Roaccutane. So which came first? You don't know. 
So that's one thing that's still hanging around unknown. And then the issue around will the pull, if they go on the pull, will that affect future fertility? By itself, no. But if you took the pull for 20 years to delay fertility and you try now at 35, yes. It's not the pull. It's the fact that you delayed your fertility and now your egg age is older. So that's the issue. Not so much that the pull caused the infertility. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I've, 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 uh, deliberated with a, a number of people in the gynecological field and they've said that, you know, the, their practice today, um, is seeing far more younger women presenting much earlier with diseases, um, that were like relegated to the 50 and 60 year olds, autoimmune diseases. And it's like shifted down that the teenagers are coming with far with worse bad skin, more because like we kind of like getting diagnosed earlier and earlier, you know, and it is this argument, where's the chicken, who's the chicken and who's the egg? And, you know, where can, what can we do as mothers to ensure like the health, the reproductive health of our children um, in the, the most natural way that we don't like land up that already by the age of 14, 15, 16, we're on the pill and we're on Raccutane and we're on all of these things. And it just, it's, it's, it looks like it's a stone that gathers moss. Mm. That's a tough one. I think, you know, to answer that, we have to ask ourselves some really hard questions, right? And I'm, as a mother and as a woman, I grapple with this and I have my own children and often I've asked myself the question, what does success look like? Think of what the kids are under pressure, what their pressure like is like. It's not just get a matric. It's get a 96% in every subject. Otherwise, you are a failure, which means you not only do your matric, you've got a tutor in every subject, yeah. right? Extramural, and then you have to keep up with social stuff. And then we all know that the system is not okay, but yet we're all in the system. So we have to find our way around it. So either we leave the system and create our own system or we change it. And I think, number one, we need to ask ourselves, what does success look like and how much of stress is okay? Do we want to have children that we medicate just to survive this life we create, right? So I think that's a just, it's just, all right. Just to finish this off, I'd like to also just add to that, is that if if you find that you have PCOS, that there is a there is a possibility that your daughter could have PCOS, so that if she does come with symptoms at a te- at, at, in her teens, you kind of know what to do. Like with my sister, her, the, remember the whole story with her knowing that she had Hashimoto. So when her nine-year-old started putting on a whole lot of weight, instead of sending her to the dietitian, she forced her doctor to do all the thyroid labs and, and like try to understand what her daughter's up to. And her thyroid levels were absolutely through the roof. So like you say, there's one thing, when you understand what you've gone through, you know that your daughter could be going through the same thing and to kind of Keep your finger on that pulse. We're speaking to Dr. Ibrahim, and we're talking particularly about the condition of PCOS, but about the overall health of women and of the young girls that, you know, that, that we find ourselves today. We are going to go for a little bit of a break, and we'll be back shortly. This is 101.9 High FM. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show. This is 101.9 High FM. Just a quick uh, reminder to everybody that Fagy and I run a WhatsApp group and that try to encourage you to look at things in a more natural way and to take uh, control of your health. If you'd like to join this WhatsApp group, just send an email to info at highfm.com. 
Give us your name and your number, and we will gladly join you. It's admin, admin run, so you're not going to be spammed. You can even leave it on silence and maybe just before you go to sleep. Think about the little thought that we, we've, we've dropped for the day. We're speaking to Dr. Ibrahim. We're talking about women's health. I want to like bring up another subject, which I, I, it's connected to PCOS. It was like really, really interesting. A couple, like maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago, I went for a mammogram um, with the late Dr. Harry Say, and he had a whole lot of questions about my reproductive years, you know, when when did I have my first child? Did I breastfeed? How, you know, what was my spacing? And I actually, I looked at him as, what are you asking all of these questions for? You know, and he said, they started to see a trend. And I think it's important to emphasize over here because, you know, I know everybody's got lifestyle choices and there there is a lot on our plates and there's a lot that we have to do. But he was emphasizing a point that you brought up. And that is, is nature has created a woman's reproductive health to be at optimum in your 20s. And whilst, you know, everybody has to do what they want to do and, you know, respect everybody for what they want to be, I don't think that there's enough of an understanding that if we make those lifestyle choices and we we put them to the side because we're just so busy doing everything else, we're actually interfering with nature, and we're landing up with a whole lot of, and I'm going to put in inverted commas, man-made conditions down the line that not necessarily we would have had if we actually had treated our body with respect and respected the nature with which we were created. Like he went and said that he saw that um, if women didn't have children early in their 20s, and he did a study of all the people that were in his uh, his practice and didn't breastfeed and didn't use that optimal time, then the incidence of cancer and autoimmune disease was much, much higher in the population. Can you talk to that and let us know your thoughts on it? Yeah, look, um, I agree with that in in many ways in that, I mean, let's look at an example of, for example, let's say endometriosis, right? So we know that endometriosis is, again, a condition where endometrial tissue grows in the pelvis outside the uterus it creates pain, painful periods, and it creates can in, create infertility. Now, what suppresses endometriosis? So, first of all, not all women who have endo won't get pregnant. Like the, the stats quote, about 15% of women with endo won't get pregnant, which means the vast majority would get pregnant, whether they have endo or not, right? If you look, what suppresses endo? A full-term pregnancy suppresses endo, puts it into remission. Breastfeeding, while you breastfeed, your hormone levels are in such a way that it suppresses the endo. So we advise women who have um, severe endo get pregnant and breastfeed in the appropriate situation. Mm-hmm. And breastfeeding, why it keeps the endo in remission? So if you're not having those, you've already removed two factors that could potentially influence a health outcome. Right? However, it's a trade-off. Yeah. You could get pregnant. You could have a condition specific to pregnancy, right, and have a health risk associated to that, which will be a lot rarer the younger you are, but that's also possible. So you may just have traded one issue for another, right? You may then develop prolapse or urinary incontinence, which you wouldn't have had if you didn't have a pregnancy, right? So it's all a trade-off, and it's all a matter of when we make these reproductive health choices to ask ourselves, what trade-off do we want? Like if we look at the breast cancer issue, having an early first pregnancy, and the research was showing even under the age of 20, 
was protected. Every time you breastfed a, a child for a year at least, it's protective. For every child you breastfeed for a year, you've got further protection. And for every girl child you breastfeed for a year, she's got protection. Wow. Right. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> and you is that research shows that you activate something called the P53 gene, which is a tumor suppressor gene. It's mm-hmm. like you give vaccination, okay, against breast cancer, but not to say that you'll never get it because there are other factors as well. So some people will say, well, I had five kids, I breastfed all of them, and I still got breast cancer. Yeah, but that wasn't the reason you got it. There must have been some other mitigating factors. So, but these are the things that we can do in our lives and make reproductive choices around that influence our outcome and our health today. That's absolutely fascinating and interesting. And yeah, I mean, Dr. Fade never told me about the, the, the gene, but I guess, you know, he, he was studying that and, and, and looking at it. I think though that like overall, I think we have as, as, as a people across the board, not only in our reproductive health, but across Across everything, cardiologically, you know, neurologically, we, 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 we are trading off a lot of our health, you know, because whatever. We've got things to do, places to go, people to see. And, you know, one, one of the focuses that we have on our show is to get people to just take a breather and stop because the body, the body can heal itself and the body has its mechanisms, you know, to be in the right place at the right time. You know, Adel, as you say that with PCOS, it's exactly the same thing as you're saying, Dr. Ibrahim. It's the diet, it's the exercise, it's the eating well, it's the lifestyle. It's it's actually, as you're saying, stop and live and be human in order for all those, you know, things to be in the, in the right process. You know, the way to look at it is to say, okay, if I hit my head against a brick wall, what's going to happen? If I hit it against a brick wall often enough, I'm going to hurt it and I'm going to hurt myself, right? So here we are living lives. We put food in our bodies that have no nutritious value. We subject ourselves to environments which are not conducive. And we expect a different outcome. We're hitting our heads on the wall, but we don't want to be hurt. We expect to have a beautiful face all the time. It doesn't work that way. The tragedy is we don't know that hitting our heads on the wall is going to create harm. That's the same thing. We live our lives, and I always counsel young girls, is that You get foods that are good for you, that make you healthy and make your body grow and work for your body's processes. And then you, they don't really taste that nice if you don't like, if you haven't developed a taste for them. And then you get foods that have no nutritional value, but they've worked on it scientifically to work on like additive index indices and feel good factors. And they put salt and sugar in there. So when you eat it, it stimulates a dopamine hit. So you don't have to take effort to learn to like that, but it absolutely does nothing for your body except make you sick. Yes. So the the conversation then is about education. It's like, I think we are lacking a lot of education with, with, with young girls out there, particularly in their teenagers where they, you know, starting to explore the world, starting to go out, starting to form relationships. Like there's an entire world. I think we have failed as a society to educate properly as to, what nature's all about and, you know, what it is that we should be doing to try and maximize what, what, what we need and what we want in life. 100%. And I think that so important, and you said what can we do as parents, right? Mm-hmm. That was what 
earlier on, so that our children are not subjected to these diseases that are lifestyle diseases. And I think it's how we live our lives and the examples we set in our own homes. Like put the food on the table, right? Have the dinner. Because on average, it shows that somebody has to try something 10 times before they're going to learn to develop a taste for it. So the first time broccoli may not be the time that they fall in love with it. And some kids will never fall in love with it, right? But they may have to taste it 10 times before they're willing to eat it on a regular basis. So it's practice and it's hard work. It's easy to put chips there, right? You have to pour the cereal on the milk. We were just discussing it a, a little while ago. We had a we had a show on ADHD, and it's it's you know it's 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 the same same conversation happening in everything that we're looking at today in terms of disease. Disease is that our lifestyles are now like promoting something that that is bringing in its wake a lot of disease. Which is, you know, a lot of our doing. Yes, there are genetic factors, as you correctly said. And sometimes we're not sure if it's the chicken or the egg, you know, or, or, or where it goes. And, you know, it's there, but I think that it's been exacerbated, um, particularly now, um, in the last 20 years, 30 years, you know, and we need to get into the high schools. We need to go and educate them. Do. Well, I, I think there just there needs to be a conversation around it. And I'm sure there's, I, I, are you aware of any, Places or people that are trying to promote this type of education? Sure, not offhand. I think there are many organizations like, for example, this platform, your radio station. So there are many community organizations that bring people in and they do ex, they teach people on nutrition. Even in going out into lower income communities, they plant vegetable gardens. They teach people the value of nutritional eating. Um, but again, it's it's very much based on marketing and media, right? So, you know, and they, those guys have got all the money to make the marketing and media budgets. The study shows that in an area where there's a McDonald's, the health of the population changes. Yes. That's the reality. And so, but yet we all eat it because it's a lifestyle we aspire to. We've arrived if we've eaten McDonald's or it's easy or it's whatever it means to anybody to do it. But to understand that not everything that people put in front of us is good for us. And how do we make a discerning choice? And sometimes you have to feel that if I eat this, my body talks to me in a different way than if I eat that. So I'll give you an example, my own children. I mean, like we all have kids. Karen, can I ask you to hold that thought? We're just going to go for a little bit of a break, and then definitely we'd like to, to talk about that example. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. This is 101.9 High FM. Um, we are talking to Dr. Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim, we do, we do have a couple of minutes left. I want to hear that example of, you know, of where, the thought that you had just before the break, um, which, you know, probably will wrap up our discussion as to PCOS being a much bigger discussion than the actual, you know, physical manifestations mm. of disease. So I think just to share that example, I mean, my own children, I have now adult children, but when they were teenagers, my biggest challenge is how do I get them to eat healthy food, right? Mm-hmm. So I would put the stuff in front of them. And I mean, eventually I would get negotiate with them that every morning they'd have a shot glass of green juice and we would measure it out and it couldn't be a drop more, otherwise they wouldn't have it. And really, I mean, the one time it was our fasting month of Ramadan, 
And, um, you know, we didn't do the juice so much. And the one day my daughter says, Mom, you know, we're passing Kauai. Can I have, please have a green juice? I was like, huh? Because yeah. I actually am thinking of the taste of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something often enough, it actually changes your body, your gut bacteria. There's studies that show this. It's a, it's amazing that when you get colonized with bad gut bacteria, it sends a chemical message to your brain to eat rubbish. Yes. There's like... A new, an endocrine pathway from your gut to your brain. When you get colonized with good bacteria, it sends a message to your brain to eat the good stuff. Fascinating. But you've got to start the process. You've got when I watch my two-year-old drinking carrot juice with tons of ginger in there, I think to myself, I don't know what, she's going to throw the thing at me, but she just drinks the whole bottle. It's quite fascinating. I hate to tell you what I did with my kids. I used to make them chew spirulina before they went to chew. Chew. And by the time they got into the car to school, they used to smile and they had this green smile all over the place. But uh, it worked backwards because now they will not take spirulina. They're so traumatized. But uh, well, I, I think the green juice. <laughs> <laughs> the Kawas. I, I think that, that, that this has been a very, very important conversation and something that needs to be shouted out from the rooftops. You know, as parents, we need to take responsibility for our children's health and for those who are growing up, you need to take responsibility yourself. And I, I love your analogy about banging your head against the wall. You know, it's like stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That at the end of the day, health is a long-term goal. It's not something, you know, that you can fix up in 24 hours. And it's something that, you know, people need to to wrap their minds around and make conscious choices about their long-term health. And certainly from a gynecological point of view and for, for a young girl's reproductive health, we are we are doing a disservice if we're not having that conversation and being educated. So, Dr. Ibrahim, again, thank you very much for your time. We know that you're a very, very busy doctor and um, well-loved in the community, but we do appreciate you giving us the time to come on and have such a meaningful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Abraham.